The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 24, a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. Lift up your head, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Okay, our sermon today, continuing on in Numbers chapter 31. It's Numbers 31, 12 through 24. This is entitled, The Captives, the Booty, and the Spoil. Starting with verse 12, Then they brought the captives, the booty, and the spoil to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the congregation of the children of Israel, to the camp in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And Moses, Eleazar the priest, and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds who had come from the battle. And Moses said to them, have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. But keep alive for yourselves all the young girls who have not known a man intimately. And as for you, remain outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. Purify every garment, everything made of leather, everything woven of goat's hair, and everything of wood. Then Eleazar the priest said to the men of war who had gone to the battle, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord commanded Moses. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can endure fire, you shall put through the fire, and it shall be clean. Then it shall be purified with the water of purification, but all that cannot endure fire, you shall put through water. And you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day, and be clean, and afterward you may come into the camp. The first seven verses of this passage are difficult for many to read and to accept. They don't seem to fit their idea of a loving God. However, they do fit the concept of a just, holy, righteous, and yes, even a merciful God. Of verses 15 through 18 in particular, the commentators at Cambridge frightfully state the following. 
all male children and all women who are not virgins are to be killed in cold blood. This cruel command described to Moses dates from an age when the Jews were approaching their narrowest and hardest state of exclusiveness, when piety consisted in rigid separateness from everything foreign. It need cause no difficulty to Christians who have received the command, love your enemies. There are several points to be made about this. First, they call what is mandated here by the Lord through Moses cold-blooded killing. If in fact the Lord commanded this, and they have then penned this commentary, then they have accused the Lord of being a cold-blooded killer. Whether he actively did the killing or whether he used his instrument of judgment, meaning Israel, to carry out his command, it makes no difference. It is a rather uncomfortable position to be in when you stand before the Lord, having accused him of such. Secondly, they say that this wasn't the Lord or Moses at all, but rather Jews who were at some point of a narrow and hard exclusivism. If this is true, then why would the Bible scholars even bother with being Bible scholars? If this isn't the word of God, then it is the word of man, and it is not worth commenting on in such an analysis. And that brings us to the third point. They have said that this need caused no difficulty to Christians who have received the command, love your enemies. Why would Christians care about the command, love your enemies, if this isn't the word of God? At what point do we say, this part is the word of God, and this part isn't? Who decides that? As it is an arbitrary decision left up to man, then the message of Christ is unreliable. And if the message of Christ is unreliable, then the words of Christ are equally unreliable. Everything stands or falls on whether the command of Moses in these verses is in accord with the word of God or not. If it's not, we are wasting our Sunday morning. We might as well just all go out and party. Live it up. Our text verse comes from Psalm 51. It is verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Traditions of this verse vary, some of them which completely obscure what David is proclaiming under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But the essential point he is making is that he inherited sin. It is not that he had to do anything to be considered a sinner. It was done for him in the act of being conceived. When he was brought forth, he was already sinful. If we can get that simple point of theology correct, then what we see in today's verses is not at all cruel or unloving. It is what any and all can and should expect from God. He is just, and our inherited sin demands justice. He is holy, and we are born in an unholy state. Therefore, our just due would be to remain separate from him for all of eternity. He is righteous, and that demands that a payment is due for our simply being conceived, a payment of death. These things aren't mere speculation. They are what Scripture teaches. But God is also loving, and he gave of himself to pay the penalty which we deserve. He is also merciful, and so he does not always give us what we deserve. The young virgins deserved exactly what the others who were brought to the camp got, but they were given mercy. Why did God allow that? And what picture was he making for us in that act? 
before we accuse God of wrongdoing, we should have our theology straight. If we are wrong, it will be a sad meeting when we finally stand face to face. In our world today, there are religions which condone what we would call murder of men, women, children. Is there a difference between what they do and what is relayed here in Scripture? The answer is yes. There is a world of difference. One is sanctioned by the true God and for very specific reasons, and the others are sanctioned by false gods. We cannot impute wrongdoing to the Lord and come out unscathed. So let's look at our verses within their proper context. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is defiled by peor. It's verses 12 through 18. The title right there ought to tell you, everything you need to know about why these women were killed. Verse 12, then they brought the captives, the booty, and the spoil. Here, three separate designations are made. The first are hashavi, or the captives. This was explained in verse 9 as the women and their little ones. The second are ha-malkoach, or the booty. These signify the takings. It is an all-encompassing thought that anything of value was taken in the campaign, including the cattle and the flocks that were plundered. And finally, our hashalal, or the spoil. This is anything else that was plundered from Midian. Such type of things will be described in verses 20 and 22. All of this was brought, verse 12 continues, to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the congregation of the children of Israel. The words are certainly intended to give the sense of a great military victory where men of war are heroes who are presenting the rewards of their efforts to the people. Moses, as the leaders, mentioned first. Eleazar is mentioned second, naming his official capacity as the priest. And then the congregation signifies the leaders of tribes and heads of families who represent the entire assembly. This will be seen in the next verse. This is a formal presentation of the victory spoils which have been brought. Verse 12 continues, to the camp in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. The words El Ha Machane, or to the camp, mean only to the location of the camp, but not into the camp. Due to defilement, the warriors and their booty would first have to pass through a ritual of purification. And because of this, it next says, verse 13, And Moses, Eleazar the priest, and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. There are two reasons for this. The first is, as already stated, that there is defilement of the people and the plunder, which must be purified before it can come into the camp. But this could have been conveyed to them by a messenger. Therefore, this is a mark of both respect and congratulations to the fighting men for their efforts. The meeting probably contained a threefold aspect. First, there would have been words fitting to the victory by Moses. Then a blessing spoken over the people by Eliezer. And then something like our modern hip hip hooray shouted by the leaders of the assembly. It is both a reward for their efforts and an encouragement and a stimulus to continue on in the same manner in future battles. Verse 14, but Moses was angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over thousands and captives over the hundreds. One can see that just as Moses, Eliezer, and the leaders had come forth from the camp, these three groups had also come forward from the army. They include the pekudei, or overseers, and the sare, or captains of the larger and smaller divisions. 
This would be comparable to the generals and the division and brigade leaders all coming forward in the modern army. It is they who are responsible for the conduct of the army. It is, therefore, these men to whom Moses shows his displeasure. Verse 14 continues, who had come from the battle. The translation leaves the sense of the verse lacking. There is a noun, tzavah, which is not fully translated. Instead of who had come from the battle, it should say something like who came in from the host of the battle. There are the hosts of Israel, numbering 12,000 men. Out of these hosts were brought forth those who commanded the force, according to their level of authority. It is they who bore the responsibility of ensuring the battle was conducted properly. Moses next verbalizes the reason for his anger. Verse 15, And Moses said to them, Have you kept all the women alive? Rather than women, it says females. Have you kept all the females alive? It's a very important change, which is not recorded in the English translation. The word is nekevah, and it signifies the sexual form of the female, inclusive of all ages. The instructions from the Lord were, Nekom nekmat bene Yisrael me'et ha-midyanim, avenging vengeance, sons of Israel, on the Midianites. Moses passed this on to the people with the words, Give vengeance, Yehovah, in Midian. By keeping the women alive, they failed to do the very thing that was expected of them. It was the women who had been used to seduce Israel. This was a matter of just retribution because of an offense against the Lord, which by default must include killing the women who brought about the offense. As Moses next explains, verse 16, Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. The words are exactingly spoken by Moses here. He begins with the word hen, or behold. He is establishing an excited tone to convey the rest of his words. His next words then set these females in contrast to the children of Israel. They were in the wrong, and they caused the Lord's people to follow them into the wrong. He then notes that what they did had been counseled by Balaam. They had taken the advice of a soothsayer in an attempt to pit their god, Peor, against the Lord. The intent is obvious. Balaam looked at Jehovah not as one all-powerful god, but as a lesser god of the Jews, just as the god of Peor was a localized god. The name Peor comes from the verb pa'ar, meaning to open wide. Thus it means the opening. As was described before, the verb yields no nouns. Thus pe'or is based on the verb itself, suggesting that this God is one who works out of a hunger or a desire. Thus he can be seen as a God of desire, yearning, and lust. What Moses is doing by using the term nekevah, or females, is showing that they are the very instruments of lust which then caused Israel to fall into sin. They were the weapon, the opening of Peor, which brought them to the lust of Peor, meaning the opening. He is using the female form to describe what the female form brought about in the men. Through Balaam's counsel, he thus caused the sons of Israel, Limsar Ma'al Yehovah, to set apart treachery against Yehovah. This is the second and last use of the word Masar. 
chapter was first seen last week in verse 5. It comes from a primitive root meaning to sunder. It thus means to set apart. In verse 5, it was the setting apart of a portion of the people from the others and to the Lord for battle. Whereas here, it speaks of those who trespassed against the Lord. In this, they were set apart from the Lord in apostasy. They had taken their affections from the Lord and set them on Peor. As a result, verse 16 continues, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. This is the outcome of what was instigated by the women. It ended in a plague where 24,000 of Israel had died. The point being made is that the Lord took vengeance against his own people to defend his own honor because of Peor. It was therefore fully expected that his own people would take full vengeance to restore that state of honor against Midian who brought this about. Verse 17, now therefore kill every male among the little ones. That sounds cold, doesn't it? You're going to understand exactly why in about one minute. The number of failed commentaries on these words goes on and on. We saw one during the introductory comments, and there are plenty more from the hands of those who don't understand either the fallen nature of man. Remember our text verse? I was sinful from birth. I was sinful when my mother conceived me, meaning the inheritance of original sin, nor the holy and righteous nature of God who allowed Moses to speak forth this command. The Lord determined that Midian should be destroyed. If the males were allowed to live, the nation would be perpetuated through them. This is not so with the females, whose children would be reckoned through the line of the father. Remember in the Bible, the father determines genealogy. Today in modern Judaism, it's the opposite. The mother does. If your mother is a Jew, you are considered a Jew. But the Bible shows that the father is the one over the genealogy. Further, being identified as Midianites, and because they would remain Midianites, they would carry that name and custom with them. How can we know this? Everybody look at me. How can we know this? Because the man now giving forth the command to Israel was not an Egyptian, but a Hebrew. Despite having been taken and brought up at a very young age as a son of Pharaoh's daughter and having been schooled in the wisdom of the Egyptians, Moses first and foremost identified himself with the people of Israel. He was spared, and look at what he accomplished. If he left those boys alive, what would they have accomplished against the people? The evidence of and justification for the need to kill every male among the little ones was the Lord's chosen leader of Israel who stood before them. And yet there is more bad news for the captives. Verse 17 continues, and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. Again, we can read this and say, what a terrible thing to command. But if there is a war and females are a part of that war, they are reckoned as soldiers to be killed. If a woman is coming at you with an AK-47, you don't say, there's a woman, don't shoot her. You take aim and you fire. That is what you do in war. This was, in fact, a war. 24,000 of Israel had died because of these women, and they had forfeit their lives because of their active participation. Matthew Henry rightly states the following. The sword of war should spare women and children, but the sword of justice should show no distinction but that of guilty or not guilty. This war was the execution of a righteous sentence upon a guilty nation in which the women were the worst criminals. 
However, Moses makes a fixed guideline by saying, Vekal isha yodaat ish le mishkav zakar harogu. And each woman known of a man by lying of a male you shall kill. Now, I'd like to stop right there, and I'd like you to focus on that last word, harag. It means kill. It is not the word which is used in the 20th chapter of Exodus at the giving of the Ten Commandments, where it says, you shall not ratzach, or murder. They are not guilty of murder in this. The Lord specifically lets them know that. The idea here is that they are the opening They have been with the man, and therefore they bear a resemblance to Peor, the opening. They cannot be allowed to live because of this. Understanding the concepts behind the words reveals the reason for the decision. Of these words, however, Adam Clark, who I love, bizarrely states, of the women killed on this occasion, it may be safely said, their lives were forfeited by their personal transgressions, and yet, Even in this case, there can be little doubt that God showed mercy to their souls. In other words, because they are women, they get to go to heaven after getting whacked. (laughs) Sorry, ladies, though it might sound like a sweet deal, it doesn't work this way. Be sure to check your theology from Scripture, not from a sentimental old guy. This is as far from the reality of Scripture as anything you might ever hear. God is no respecter of persons, and he doesn't give a pass to anyone based on age, sex, culture, color, or for any other reason apart from being in Jesus Christ. Moses' words are not arbitrary, they are not inappropriate, and they are perfectly in line with the honor of the Lord. But those who are to be spared next are next noted. Verse 18. But keep alive for yourselves all the young girls who have not known a man intimately. This command is not because they were to be used as sex slaves. It is not because they were of value for resale, nor for any other such reason that might casually be tossed out, which would indicate some benefit for Israel. Rather, the reason for this is twofold. First, it is no different than the edict of Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, where it said this, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. The females would be assimilated into Israel. They would not become avengers of blood, nor would they bear the family line of the natural father to the next generation. Instead, their children would become citizens of Israel through the father. And secondly, They were spared for exactly the opposite reason that the other women were killed. They, lo yadeu mishkav zakar, not have known intimately male. They remained unopened, and thus they did not yet bear the image of the false god Peor. The command makes perfect sense when it's compared to the surrounding text. What is it that we have done to offend the Lord? What sin have we committed before his face? Surely, payment for our sins we cannot afford. We are left ashamed, abandoned, and disgraced. What we deserve is death for the things we have done. Our lot is rightly to be cast into the pit of hell. But God made the payment. He sent forth his son. Such a wonderful story for us, the Bible does tell. We have pursued other gods following after them hard. We have not been faithful to the awesome and terrible Lord. But when he died on Calvary bearing the scent of nard, peace between us and God has mercifully been restored. 
Our second thought today is the rites of purification, verses 19 through 24. Verse 19, and as for you, remain outside the camp seven days. The words are in the second person plural. It is referring to all those who had come from the campaign. It is explicit, but it is general. All were to remain outside of the camp for seven days. A state of defilement existed because of the battle, the proximity to the pagans, being around unclean things, and so on. This would have been the unstated standard for any similar future campaigns. No distinction is made for any person. All are together considered as unclean. However, there are different states of defilement for which further action may be required. Verse 19 continues, whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain. Unlike the previous clause, which was explicit but general, this is explicit and specific. It is directed to any who had killed another person or to anyone who had touched a slain person. The act of killing, regardless as to whether the person actually died at that moment or not, is considered to bring about a state of defilement. Further, it may be that someone didn't kill anyone, but he was still a part of the burial team. Picking up the dead to toss them into a grave would also have brought about defilement. But what about the person who didn't kill anyone and who didn't have to bury anyone? Why did he have to remain outside the camp? It is because he was a part of the campaign and would have been defiled simply by being around someone who was directly defiled. He would be required to remain outside the camp. For these defiled people, Moses says, verse 19 going on, purify yourselves and your captives. Titchateu, unsin yourselves. The Hebrew actually places the words and your captives at the end of the clause. In other words, it reads, unsin yourselves on day the third and on day the seventh, you and your captives. The word unsin yourselves do not mean that they had committed some type of moral transgression. Rather, what they had done was at the command of the Lord. But by coming in contact with death, they had incurred guilt and required purification. We went through that in detail back in the book of Leviticus. To understand this, And what their purification fully entailed and pointed to, one would have to watch the two sermons from Numbers 19, because we also talked about that in the book of Numbers. Concerning one, the red heifer, a marvelous picture of Christ, and two, the water of purification, another marvelous picture of Christ. In short, the entire process looks to the purification offered by the Lord. The people of Israel, even when acting in obedience to the Lord's command, incurred guilt. In this, we can then understand the typology and how it points to our state before God and how that is cleansed by Christ. Now, in a classic misuse of scripture, the Cambridge commentators say of these words, the Hebrews had not yet received the higher teaching that only the things which proceeded out of the man are those that defile the man. Jesus, in that passage, was speaking about foods not defilement through death, disease, or the like. The Lord, through the law of Moses, declared these people unclean and were kept separate from the camp because the camp is where the Lord dwelt among the people. The laws were given to fit the typology, which points to Christ. This is not an issue of eating foods, but of maintaining purity in the presence of the Lord. It is true that the law was given as a tutor to lead us to Christ, but the same principle applies now. Those who are stained with sin cannot enter into the presence of the Lord. It is Christ who purifies from sin. 
It is Christ who covers us with his righteousness, and it is Christ who therefore keeps us from the imputation of further sin when we are in him. For those who are not so covered, they are and will be excluded from the presence of God. To purify these people in a manner typical of that of the purification of Christ, Moses next says, verse 19 continues, on the third day and on the seventh day. This is based on the words of Numbers 19. There it says, He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. If you remember that sermon, it pointed to everything about our lives before Christ, after Christ, and when he comes to get us. All who are in the campaign and all of their captives would have been so defiled. The blood of the dead would have been on hands, on garments, and on articles taken from the dead. Captives might have touched the dead in mourning. None were free from the effect of the sin of death, and thus all required purification. Verse 20, purify every garment, everything made of leather, everything woven of goat's hair, and everything made of wood. The actual means of purification is stated in verse 23, meaning the water of purification. But because of the defilement of the battle, which permeated everything, all things were to be purified. The list includes every garment. This means the garments of the soldiers as well as the garments of the captives. It would extend to any garments taken from the dead or out of the homes of the people. It next says, Bekal keli or, and every vessel skin. This could be a wineskin, some type of purse, or whatever else. The law for this was given in Numbers 19, verse 15, and every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. The idea is that the vessel is unclean and requires purification. However, the word keli, or vessel, can extend to anything made of skin. Sandals, parchment, tents, saddles, and so on. It next says, vekal ma'ase izim, and all worked goats. Tent coverings, garments, blankets, and so on would all require purification. But this may even be inclusive of other items made from goats, such as horns, bones, hooves, and the like. And then it says, and all vessels would. This could be pretty much anything from spoons, bowls, to cups, to beds, boxes, and wagon wheels. Whatever was made of wood was to be sprinkled for purification. Or, as it more literally says again, they are to be unsinned. Verse 21 Then Eliezer the priest said to the men of war who had gone to the battle, now Eliezer speaks out. What he will say is based on words given in Numbers chapter 19. There it said, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, the law was spoken to Moses as the lawgiver and to Aaron, who was the priest responsible for these priestly functions. As the law has been given, it is now the priest who speaks forth what has been received. However, It is now Aaron's son who stands as the high priest of Israel. Therefore, it is he who addresses the men of war who had gone out to battle. Verse 21 going on. This is the ordinance of the law. Zot chukat ha-Torah. This enactment the law. 
It is a very rare phrase, which combines two common words, chukat, or statute, and Torah, meaning law or instruction. The two words together in this manner are only seen here and back in Numbers 19, verse 2, where this particular type of purification was also the subject. For the combined form, John Lang provides a general meaning. He says, We would read an ordinance for securing the Torah. Without this expedient, for instance, the law of purification would have occasioned endless offenses on the right hand and on the left. In other words, the word Torah, or law, used here is an all-encompassing statement concerning not any given law, but the law of Moses itself. In order to secure the law and keep it free from constant defilement in the people, this statute is given now is being enacted. Verse 21 continues, which the Lord commanded Moses. Asher Siva Yehovah et Moshe, which commanded Yehovah Moses. Now the Chukata Torah, or the enactment of the law, is said to have been Siva, or commanded by the Lord. There is a definite importance which is ascribed to what Eliezer conveys to his people. It is binding on all people because it is a part of the mutually agreed-to covenant between the Lord and his people. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron concerning the guidance that he commanded. Eliezer now conveys that word to the people. The reason for this is because the typology looks to Jesus Christ. The pulpit commentary finds it extraordinary that Eliezer would stand and proclaim this while Moses is standing right there. Here's what they say. This is the earliest instance of the high priest declaring to the people what the law of God as delivered to Moses was, and then applying and enlarging that law to meet the present circumstances. It is no doubt possible that Eliezer referred the matter to Moses, but it would seem on the face of the narrative that he spoke on his own authority as high priest. The reason for this is that he will speak next of cleansing of items by fire and water something which was never explained before. They are so surprised by this that they also say that verses 21 through 24 were probably added after the death of Moses. That's a very convenient way of getting rid of your problems, is saying that somebody added it in, or it's just a scribal error, or it's a mistake, or whatever. But that completely undermines the purpose of having a high priest. Moses was the one who received and gave out the law. Once the law was given, it was set. There was no need for Moses to interpret a law which was already passed on and in effect. And further, if someone later inserted these verses, they would have done it without the instructions from Moses. Their interpretation would be no more valid than that of Eliezer. And it would also then have been added after the fact into the word of God, which was for Moses to receive. What they propose makes no sense, and it damages the integrity of Scripture. Rather, Eliezer's coming words stand as appropriate, and their inclusion in the word confirms that it is so. Verse 22, only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead. Six metals are named, one of which is new to Scripture, bedil, or tin. The word comes from badal, meaning to separate, and thus it signifies an alloy, and thus by analogy, tin. The word will be used six times, but one of them, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 10, will speak of a plumb line, 
because a plumb line separates that which is considered plumb or upright and that which is not. These metals are capable of withstanding fire, a marvelous source of purification. And so it's no surprise that Eliezer would make his proclamation. And so he now continues, verse 23, Everything that can endure fire you shall put through the fire, and it shall be clean. This precept has been seen numerous times. When a sin offering is made for the congregation, parts of it were burned on the altar, and the rest was burned outside the camp, implying that purification and destruction comes through fire. In another example, which most poignantly points to purification through fire, it says this from back in number 16. Here's what it said. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eliezer, the guy that's standing right next to Moses right now, tell Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, to pick up the censers out of the blaze, for they are holy, and scatter the fire some distance away. The censers of these men who sinned against their own souls. So they were in conjunction with sin, right? And yet the Lord says for the priest to pick it up and that they're holy. Let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar, because they presented them before the Lord, therefore they are holy, and they shall be assigned to the children of Israel. Eliezer was personally aware of the purifying effects of fire. These unholy men, with their unholy offerings, were burnt in the fire. The censors withstood it and were purified. And so for him to interpret the law in this way is not only right, It is proper for him to do so. However, this was not fire on the altar, which was holy fire. It is fire outside the camp used for cleansing the items. Once they were declared clean, they still required a final purification. Verse 23 continues, and it shall be purified with the water of purification. Translations vary here, but the Hebrew indicates that despite being clean after passing through the fire, the metals still had to be purified or unsinned with the water of purification. Unlike the items that were purified with holy fire, these were only considered clean. They still required the purification which points to Christ, meaning the water of purification which contained the ashes of the red heifer. Here's what's being said here. The censers of those unholy men that came before the Lord were purified by the Lord's fire and therefore they were holy. But these were only purified by regular fire, not the Lord's fire. And so they still needed to be purified further. Why? Because everything that points to Christ is necessary for purification. Because the fire wasn't holy fire, it purified it, but it did not purify it completely. Only Christ can, hence the water of purification, the red heifer ashes. And because of that, it pictures Christ. In the end, This book that we're reading and analyzing and evaluating right now, every single detail of it points to one thing, Christ. Without Jesus, there is no purification, and we can't purify something with fire and expect it to be purified unless it is further purified by Christ. Our lives, you see, our lives are involved in it. When we get up before the Lord, now, here we are. I'll give you an example that maybe you can understand. It says that we're all going to go before the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ. Got that? It says right now we're not being imputed sin because we are in Christ. But we do unholy things, don't we? We go before the Lord, and what does it say that God is going to do? He's going to burn up all of the bad things. The purifying fire of Christ is going to burn up every bad thing that you and I have ever done. 
there's not going to be much left of Charlie Garrett. I can assure you of that. Not to be smart. It's just the way that it is. Ask my dad. Ask my wife. They know me. Okay. But what I'm saying is that it must be Christ who does the final purification. We are in Christ, but we still need his final purification. That's what's being pictured here. Something similar to that. Verse 23 continues, but all that cannot endure fire, you shall put through water. This now speaks of all of the other non-metallic items, skins, goat's hair, wood, or whatever else that could not withstand the fire had to be washed in water. What is implied, though not stated, is that it would then be purified with the water of purification. This is because this water was required of such things in Numbers 19.18. So it's either fire and then the water of purification, or it's water and then the water of purification. Verse 24 finishes with these words, And you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean, and afterward you may come into the camp. These words are similar to those of Numbers 19 verse 19, with some changes. The people were required to wash their clothes, as noted there. It then says, and be clean. This is probably an abbreviated way of saying that the individual was also to bathe, and thus he became clean, as also required there in Numbers chapter 19. After this, they could again enter the camp. This is then what is alluded to in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The people, despite having been commanded to destroy Midian, may have had hearts that were timid, hateful, covetous, or remorseful over the actions they experienced in battle. And they also bore the defilement of the death that they participated in. In the time of purification and cleansing, they were used as a picture of what would come in the true cleansing found in Jesus Christ. And for those who were brought into the camp from outside of Israel, meaning these young virgins, they were cleansed and brought into the community from that point on. The water of purification was sprinkled on them. After the required time and cleansings, they became a part of the community. You talk about mercy, there it is right there. They certainly could have refused this even at such a young age. It was a voluntary action to do so, as was seen back in Numbers 19. To refuse the sprinkling meant to be cut off from the assembly of the Lord, because as it says, that person had defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. For one of the girls, they would have then met their fate like the others of Midian. The chances of that would have been very unlikely, but if so, it is no different than what happens to people who hear the gospel today and then who reject it. They remain apart from the covenant. And they are destined to be destroyed along with all others who fail to come to Christ for whatever reason. It is to be remembered from the instructions detailed in chapter 19 that the people who did the sprinkling of those requiring purification were also made unclean by their duties. Remember that? Everybody that was involved in the red heifer ashes and the making of the water of purification, even the sprinkling of the water of purification, every single person became unclean by that act. They were considered unclean until evening. In fact, every person associated with the process of making and transmitting that water of purification became unclean in the process. The reason was that everything associated with the red heifer pictured Christ in his death. It is Christ who cleanses from all unrighteousness, but uncleanness had to come 
from his dead body, a real human body that died in order for that to come about. That is why there is no sprinkling with blood in this purification. The blood cleansing is accomplished in Christ's death. It is the death and the body of death which is dealt with in the water of purification. It is that which defiles. The red heifer is the only sacrifice where the blood was burned with the body. From there, the ashes were mixed with the living water. That furthered the picture of Christ. He didn't die and stay dead. He rose to provide living waters. But that can only be appropriated through his death, even though his dead body brought defilement under the law of Moses. The truth we found in Numbers 19, and which is seen again here, is that one cannot get to the living water until he is first cleansed by the blood, even though the death associated with that blood defiles. Romans 6 verse 3 said that we are baptized into Christ's death. Only through that can we be cleansed. His death, however, was for man's sin. Without Christ becoming sin, we could not become the righteousness of God in him. Though we were baptized into his death, we are raised to new life through the power of his resurrection. That is the living water with which the ashes were mixed. And it is that which ultimately cleanses us wholly and forever from the defilement of death that we carried in our bodies ever since the first moments of our human existence. It is an amazing thing that God has done in Jesus Christ, and it is found in this passage, which is given to show the effectiveness of the command, which was first detailed in Numbers chapter 19. The lesson is, come to Christ and be freed from the sin of death, and you will be granted life. You will be accepted into the sanctuary of the Lord, and you will be there in the presence of God, the God who loves you enough to do all of this for you for all eternity. Come to Christ. This is what the Bible would ask us to do, is to simply come to Christ. It's very sad that those women were taken out and killed. It does not mean that anything was done wrong in the process. And in fact, the saving of those young girls was a merciful act that did not have to occur because they inherited the same original sin that every one of us in this room inherited. And the only thing that we deserve, as I said at the beginning of this sermon, is separation from God for all eternity. The cure and the answer is Jesus Christ, and no other answer is possible. If you just think it through logically, God is one. There aren't lots of gods, as our brother here said. Oh, Lord Krishna is the same. Was it Krishna you mentioned? Krishna, right? Yeah, Lord Krishna is the same as Lord Jesus. And he said, no, he came to kill sinners. This one came to save sinners. I don't care what religious expression you go to, there is flaw in it. There is no flaw in this, and what makes me so very angry is when scholars of this particular book tear it apart as if there's flaw, and then you just follow the logic that Charlie presents during the sermon, and you'll find out that there's no flaw. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm great. I didn't mean to say it in any way bragging. I'm just simply saying that I am taking this, and I'm presenting it to you the way that the Lord expects. Peor means the opening. It's a God of lust. The women had been opened. They were bringing lust upon the men. And because of that, they deserve their death. Every single word in this book, even when you don't understand it, has a reason. I didn't read a single commentary that even alluded to that. But that is what the Lord is trying to tell us by using this one word, nekevah, instead of isha. Instead of woman, he's saying female. And there's a reason for it. And everything else follows suit because of that. 
And it all points to Christ. So please, if you've never just said, okay, I'm done. I'm tired of arguing with God. I'm tired of being apart from him. You just call on Christ. Everything will make sense in your life after that. And the more you pursue him, the more it will make sense. It's up to you and your walk with God to be right with him or to just follow along haphazardly behind him at various points when you have a disaster in your life. The best thing to do is just follow hard after him. Every step of the way, follow hard after the Lord. Okay, please come to Christ. Our closing verse comes from Colossians chapter 3. It's verses 1 through 4. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You talk about eternal salvation, there's another verse right there. You were hidden with Christ in God. You were hidden there. Next week, Numbers 31, 25 through 54. We see this now. And we will see it again with Gideon. That's in the book of Judges. It's entitled, The Spoils of Midian. That'll be your 61st number sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in the desert wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there. He's carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I got a question for you. Anybody gets this right, I'll give them a Maserati. This is a give me. There's somebody in here that's got to get this. Okay, the passage today used the idea of the female form drawing off men from following the Lord to idolatry. Which book of the Bible personifies wisdom as a female, wait, and yet goes into great detail concerning the seduction of man by the woman leading him to destruction? Anybody? Proverbs. Who said that? My mother did. My mother gets a Maserati. Wisdom is personified as a woman. And then for the next several chapters, that was chapter four of Proverbs. And then chapters five through seven shows exactly how stupid human beings are by following after women who are harlots, idolatry away from the Lord. He gives you the answer before he gives you the dilemma. And he does it with us in our walk with Christ, too. He gives us the answer, and then we have our dilemmas, and we fail to go to the answer. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So you had to know that the Word of God existed when you were saved. And so there's the answer, the Word of God. And what do you do? You just ignore the Word of God, and you get your life into problems, and then you go to the Word of God. Get it right. Get it right. Get the order right. Our poem today is called The Captives, the Booty, and the Spoil. Oh, I just love this word. It's marvelous, isn't it? Then they brought the captives, the booty, and the spoil to Moses, to Eliezer the priest, and to the congregation of the children of Israel. Thus they did so. To the camp in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho. And Moses, Eliezer the priest, and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp, probably filled with elation. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds, too, who had come from the battle. And Moses said to them, have you kept all the women alive? Now let me speak to you. 
Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. You yourselves saw that terrible sword. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. Yes, do this as stated by me. But keep alive for yourselves all the young girls who have not known a man intimately. And as for you, remain outside the camp for seven days. Whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day once again. Purify every garment, everything made of leather. Be sure this is understood. Everything woven of goat's hair and everything made of wood. Then Eliezer the priest said to the men of war who had gone to the battle to them these words he handed This is the ordinance of the law, which the Lord to Moses commanded. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can endure fire, you shall put through the fire, and it shall be clean, and it shall be purified with the water of purification. But all that cannot endure the fire, you shall put through water. This cleansing shall be seen, and you shall wash your clothes and be clean on the seventh day, and afterward you may come into the camp as to you, I say, Lord God. We are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful word that resolves many things which on the surface seem brutal, cruel, hard for us to accept, and yet they show us why they happen. The mechanics are there if we're willing to search them out. And then we can see without any doubt that you are faithful as a God to your creation and to your creatures, and it is we who have turned from you, and we deserve nothing less than destruction. But you give us grace. How wonderful you are to do that. And Lord, you heard the people mentioned at the beginning of this service, and also our brother who's visiting from India, and we would ask that you would remember all of them in your own way, taking care of them, prospering them, blessing them in their hearts and in their souls, and meeting their needs according to your great wisdom. And Lord, we love you and we thank you for your presence in our lives because of what Christ Jesus did for us. He's ever present with us. His spirit is with us because of what was accomplished on the tree of Calvary for our sins. Thank you for that, and we long for his return, and may it be soon. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.